welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed blues pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, you guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast. To be or not to be, that is the question. Seems like a good question. That's not what today's podcast is about at all. But uh, how are you all doing? I just want to throw you all off, keep you on your toes. Welcome to Good Bottle Podcast. I am your host, Chris Sinclair. I'm joined by my co-host, the ever-annoyed, very, very thrown off his rocker by everything that comes out of my mouth, Mr. Drew Garrison. What's up, homie? Hey, buddy. I I loved it. I just I thought there was going to be a completion to that. but Oh, no. You know, that, would, that would require way too much effort on my part. Yeah. I mean... I, I certainly have accepted the fact that you don't ever put any time into your intros and that it, it pretty much starts to percolate as soon as you hit the record button is when you finally start to think about what you're going to say. 100% correct. But that's also just kind of how this podcast is. And um, But I will I do have to mention this. I've had a pretty great day and for a couple reasons. One, it's been snowing at my house all day, which is insane. It should not be snowing. But oh, you live is. in that. You live in the space where that's a that's a thing. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. it's happening. It's we're we're twelve hundred feet up and we're getting a bunch of snow today. My wife loved it. My kid loved it. So that was fun to share with them. And then also, I gotta tell you, I think we've been on a little bit of a hot streak. We've ha- I've had multiple people reach out to me and then stuff. And like I ran into a couple people today where they were just kind of like they're like, "Whoa, the podcast! Like, you guys are getting like some serious people." And I was like, "I know you would not believe my method." You know, and um, it works. It totally works. The people that we get are are amazing, and uh, it's just it's just been fun, you know. And I think that we we kind of have like a calling card now, where people can look at our episodes. In fact, tonight's guest did that to us as well, where she was like, "Oh, you have had legit people. This is something that maybe I can spend a little time with you." And it's freaking awesome because I mean, we just we never expected to be at this point where. People are like genuinely excited to talk to us now, which is which is great. And I love it. And I love the fact that people keep saying yes, because I just continue to talk to people who I think are rad. And it's almost like a completely selfish endeavor at this point. Like it It totally is. It's pretty great because uh, really in my life, you're the only person who's ever really actually genuinely excited to talk to me. Fact. Yeah. Yeah. And I and it's it's funny. We've always talked about this podcast being this this conversation that we've been having for years and they're like, Oh, well let's put it into podcast form. And we're still having this conversation outside of, you know, everything that we talk about from week to week. So like we, just to our listeners at home, you, you have no idea what we spare you from because we work out a lot of this stuff and it doesn't seem like it necessarily, but there is a lot of conversations that we do spare you from. Um, but I want to move forward and I want to bring in our guest because I'm very excited about this person. This person is actually responsible for at least a at least a small part of the passion that I have for Mezcal because her book was the second or third Mezcal book that I actually got to read because there just wasn't a lot at the time. And then um she also brought some things to the table which we're going to talk about a little bit more that nobody else had done at that point. So there is an introduction that I'm going to read to everybody. And I want to put this out there because it's awesome. And she put the time in to describe it. And she even gave me permission not to say these things. But I do think it's important for, for our readers or for our listeners at home to, to know this stuff. So our guest tonight 
is a freelance journalist and photographer, formerly the digital content editor at Imbibe Magazine, which is a great magazine if you haven't already subscribed to that. Really, really, really great stuff. Where she was there for almost seven years. Currently working as the USA Midwest Academy Chair for the world's 50 best bars. Really, really hot topic every single time it comes out. We're not going to get into it tonight, but always, always, you know, lauded and controversial at the same time. It's great. Uh, and then a book author. Her books, the one that I was just talking about, is Mezcal, The History, Craft, and Cocktails of the World, World's Ultimate Artisanal Spirit, which was nominated for the James Beard Award in 2018. She co-authored The Way of the Cocktail with Julia Mamos of the Michelin star Kumiko. She contributed to the Oxford Companion and Spirits of Cocktails by Dave Wondrich. Kind of a big deal. That dude's a big deal in this industry, so she knows him. That's pretty cool. And recently finished co-authoring The Bartender's Manifesto with Toby Maloney, which is a great name, of the James Beard Foundation award-winning bar, The Violet Hour. Our guest tonight is Emma Jansen. Emma, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. What are you sipping on? Is there anything else that you could share with the readers or with the listeners about us, about yourself? Hey, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. I feel like that was enough of a mouthful. Um, uh, I'm blushing, which, you know, is useless when you're on a podcast because no one can see you blush. Uh, Probably could have gotten away without even telling you about it. But, um, you know, there we go. Um, Yeah, no, things are good. Um, I have a huge glass of Punte Mes with me tonight. Um, just Punti Mace, uh, one of my favorite Italian liqueurs, um, which I like to have as kind of a nightcap. And so I'm on the East Coast um, time, uh, so I'm several hours ahead of you guys. And um, I'm I'm a sucker for a nightcap, but um, you know the higher proof whiskeys and whatnot have gotten me into plenty of trouble as as nightcap <laughs> fodder. So uh, these days I tend to reach for something like Punta Mace, which has that beautiful like herbaceousness, but is also like really juicy and and low proof. I love it. I love it. So is that is that the usual go to, or are you? Is there a rotation of liqueurs or amaros that you kind of go through for the for the nightcaps? Ooh, I'm not super picky when it comes to Amari. I love almost all of them. Um, anything that's like big, bold, and bitter. Um, of course, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of what I've been through lately. Um, I really like the stuff that's coming out of Nardini in Northern Italy. Um, their Fernet is really good. Um, they have a Rebarbaro that I'm absolutely in love with. Um, that's because it's got that little bit of a smoky quality to it, which I, I tend to gravitate towards. Um, yeah, otherwise, it's it's definitely like, you know, I like a, a heavier scotch or a Japanese whiskey or or something like that at the end of the night. Something, you know, comforting, but bold. Yeah, kind of like a warm hug. It's like, okay, now go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I dig it. So, you know, each... Each week that we have a guest on, we send them a little questionnaire and we send them a couple of story topics. And of course, we always leave it open to the guests, but but most of the time it's kind of dictated by us where we're like, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. So we sent you the, the stuff this week and you were like, I have no idea about any of this stuff. And I 
or it's like, and you were like, is there any way we can talk about something else? And I love the response because so often we do get a lot of guests that don't know anything about the topics that we're discussing, but there's just so much ego involved that they're kind of like, whatever, I can handle it. And I'm going <laughs> to talk about it. Um, and that was just not the case. You're kind of like, no, I, can we, what about this? What about that? And I just, I love the feedback. And then you also just gave us like really great answers to some of our questions too. So, you know, some of the things that we'll, you know, we'll come around to naturally, um, you know, as, as they come up. But one of the things I wanted to highlight was, you know, I always ask people, what do you absolutely do want to talk about? And, and one of the things that you said was spirits with a sense of place. That's the kind of stuff I'm really going to be focusing on my work and moving into the future. For example, spirits that are driven by a terroir are really deeply embedded in the culture of a place like Mezcal Gin, Italian Amari, etc. Um, that just resonated with me so much. And I know it did with Chris as well, because this is something that we talk about, whether it's terroir or uh, provenance. And I mean, I even used it today. Like I read that email this morning and I used it in like a pitch later that I was just like, you know, these, I was talking about Mezcal in the, in the sense of place. So I've already, I've already completely hijacked that from you, but (laughs) (laughs) you know, why does that end up being such a big factor for you? And, you know, it's come across in your writing over time as well, but like, what, what about the sense of place do you think is the most important? Like, like, why is that so important to you? Yeah. Um, I think there's, I think there's two parts to it. Um, and the first one, and, and this is something I've kind of come to realize when I, I stepped back and I looked at, okay, like I've been writing about cocktails. I've been writing about spirits and beer and wine for, um, 10 plus years. And, and I've written, I've always been in a position where I'm, I kind of have to know a little bit about everything, right? Yeah. Um, so that I can cover every category for the magazine or for freelance writing or whatnot. Um, and so I kind of stepped back and I was like, okay, but what am I, what really drives my, like, what am I really interested in? Um, and I think it comes from two places. The first is I'm not like from one place. Like I wasn't born and raised in the same city. Um, I'm from Texas, but my mom is from England. Um, We lived all over the U.S. as a kid. Um, And still, I mean, really still to this day, I'm I'm traveling a lot. So I I lived in Austin for a long time. And then my husband and I moved to Chicago and now we're in Michigan. And so I think me personally, I'm driven by this idea of like, what does it mean to be of a place? And like, why do certain parts of the country have the, you know, these um, uh, trends in cocktails or specific flavors that developed in this one place, but that have, doesn't exist somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the second part to that is very much, um, you know, my generation and generations that are adjacent. Um, I think so many of us grew up in, in this era where there is so much uniformity, right? Like there are so many small towns where you can go and and there's gonna be a mall and it's gonna have all the same shops, right? There's always gonna be a damn Chili's. There's always gonna be, um, you know, the the same bookstores and the same record stores and well, when those used to exist. Um, and all of those things. And so, um, you know, and the same kind of happened with our food and with our drink. And now I think we're collectively stepping back and saying, okay, I, I'm done with that uniformity. I'm done with this like mass production stuff. 
what I'm most interested is in things that have a soul that is that is unique. It's unique to a person or, or the time of year that they made this spirit or wine or, um, you know, etc. I think it's a, I think it's a great, great answer. And, and I want to piggyback a, a little bit with a focus on, on like these really interesting stories and stuff. And I think for a lot of reasons, you know, America's kind of behind in a lot of that, uh, culturally speaking and, uh, just it, it just hasn't been around for as mm-hmm. long as a lot of these other countries and these other, you know, um, other places in the world. And so, you know, even, even looking at even looking at your list, you know, it's talking about places, you know, like, like Mezcal and Italian Amari and, and gin and whatnot. Do you see I mean, I don't want to I don't want you to create enemies in any cities or not like but like. Are there any cities that you can think of in the U.S. that you kind of feel like, like, man, that is so unique, this place. And like they've really kind of cultivated that, you know, just through your travels. I'm just curious, like, because I think it's it's very easy for us to always kind of be like, it's like, yeah, you know, Italia, uh, you know, Italy with this thousands of years of history and stuff like that. Well, mm-hmm. we don't have that here and not everybody has the capabilities of going to those places. Um, what, you know, closer to home is is does anything jump out to you? just in your travels, just thoughts. Yeah. I mean, you know, the cities like Austin and Texas um, and like um, really just Texas as a whole does come to mind um, because um, there is this, uh, this Tex-Mex culture, right? There is a lot of agave consumption, but um, there are like a lot of local flavors that bartenders weave into cocktails um, and that, I guess, just cocktail-wise, that's kind of the first place that that came to mind. Yeah. Um, Spirits-wise, I I love um, what's going on in um, in like whiskey in places like the Pacific Northwest, right, where they're using like uh, uh, the local varieties of trees to make the barrels and. Um, you know, distillers say, what is it like 70% of the flavor of a whiskey comes from what kind of barrel it's staged in. And so right. you get that characteristic and that's, that's unique to that area. Yeah. Um, I love that stuff. No, I think, I think that's a great point. It is really fun to see like, whether it's Westward, Westland, and this kind of goes on and on in terms of those Northwest yeah. whiskeys are fun. Uh, hey, Chris, what are you drinking? And after you explain that, do you have, is there anything that you would like to ask Emma right now? in this pre-show thing that we're doing conversation. I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> Our little chatter. Uh, yeah, I am. I am. Uh, I just finished and I was uh, really bummed about it. So I, I drink two things tonight. Uh, I guess two things would be past tense. I am currently only drinking one. That's because I finished. I, I had my kill shot on my uh, Chocolo. Nice. Um, uh, that I uh, have been waiting on for a long time uh to finish and i thought the um thought that tonight's topic of discussion uh this was a great drink um but i finished it before the show so it was a good drink <laughs> i was right uh now <laughs> i've moved on to uh my uh cinco sentidos uh my espadine and uh tobasiche i love this brand nice. i love the mescalic uh, that they're uh producing and and allowing the rest of us to be able to drink. Um, and it's really incredible. So that, that's what I'm drinking tonight. And uh, I'm, I'm bummed that the Chocolo is gone. I'm going to have to get more from you at some point in time. I mean, that's a 
that was always the case regardless, but uh, <laughs> we do. Well, have, we, 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 we have some right now, which is nice because it's not always the case with that one. It's a, wow. it's a, it's a rare agave spirit out of, uh, out of Jalisco. So that's uh good calls. All right. Do you have a question? I, I think more of like topic of discussion. And you had mentioned a thing um, about yourself that I had never connected the dots for myself as well. I, I, Two, I'm not specifically from one place. Uh, I was born in New Jersey, spent a little bit of time there, spent a little bit of time growing up between New York City and New Jersey, and then high school moved to Midwest. After high school for college, I moved to moved to Colorado, a little bit of extra college in California, and then I've been here ever since, right? So I've lived all across this country and ne- have always felt, um, while there are cultural things uh, to family um, that sense of place within myself has always been a thing that I I've been see- seeking. You know, I, I always found myself mm-hmm. assimilating to every new place that I would go to as I was young and insecure. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I never connected the dots that maybe that's also why I'm in love with these stories and these, all, all these spirits that also have a sense of place. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, that was great insight into yourself that I was able to, uh, mm-hmm. uh steal and make my own. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, right? It's so strange because uh, you feel like you want to belong, but then, but then I always found myself relating to where I was from last. So when we moved from Texas to Colorado, it was I had to, I found myself working y'all out of my vocabulary because the kids at school would make fun of me, and and then mm. when I moved, I moved back to Austin, kind of like got back into that um you know back into that mindset again and then we moved to Chicago and then I was like you know what no fuck this I'm not gonna get rid of y'all this time like I'm gonna get it back you know I'm gonna reclaim this like small and that's just the linguistics right like you said what's funny is I learned y'all in middle school in New York City uh uh and so people oftentimes ask me if I'm from the south or from Texas I'm like nah I'm like I'm from New York and that's uh, that's where that comes from uh, which is funny. so so funny, and I think it. I don't know where that crossover for that word is, and I'm sure that there's there is a uh, linguist out there who who knows that fully. And if sure. so, send me that article because I would love to read that. But uh, I I'm not in the know for that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I'll give you guys the flip side of of that experience. So I just I grew up in Northern California. I grew up just north of Sacramento. Did spend some college years uh in montana and a little bit of time in southern california after that but you know for me it's the opposite it's like because i grew up in this place that is kind of what you described initially and would kind of like like yeah you have your strip malls you have like this you have that like you kind of have these standard suburb life where when i have gotten to visit these places uh it's just kind of like oh my god like there's it they're just so rich with culture and in a sense of community, which I never really grew up with. And it's interesting because I, I actually moved a little bit further north about four or five months ago. And it's the first time I think I've ever lived somewhere with a personality. Like it's awesome. And it's really fun to be a part of because I, I think this is something I've been searching for for my entire life. And it was either through, you know, spirits where I, you know, you feel like you could be transported through through liquid right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe I can't be there, but like I can get a sense of that place or in terms of like my travels, like it can take me back to that place. Um, and I think that's, what's like really great about your writing is it's very like transportive, you know, like I just, 
I read your book before I went to Oaxaca the first time. And, you know, it, and it was really in preparation for that trip. It was just like, I'm, I'm trying to read as much as I can. And even though I had been there or I hadn't been there before, there was this level of familiarity that I had because of these things that I had read in the, the story, you know, and the, just the narration that you had put out there for me, which is kind of like, it's like, it's like, Whoa, like this is, this is really great. Like, I feel like I've been here before, even though this is the first time, you know? So I just want to, you know, again, convey that. So if anyone who has not read, you know, your book, you know, and, and the tough thing is, is like, Mezcal has changed so much since that book came out, you know, and like things that we thought were the case are no longer the case. And it's just, it's a lot to wrap your mind around. Do you ever look back on some of those writings and kind of be like, like, well, you know, maybe that wasn't as accurate as I thought, but you know, I think we still got the gist, you know, or is, has there ever been any moments like that? I have not gone back through the book, I think specifically for that reason. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure if I read it today, I would be like, oh, well, I probably would have done that differently or right. this is this is no longer relevant or, um, you know, things like that, which uh, because it's a book and I can't really like, go back and, and change it or and there's no plans really for an update in, in the near future as far as I'm aware um so yeah no i don't put myself through that torture uh, i think that's i think that's probably <laughs> smart because uh i'm currently listening to a to a finance book that's on its second edition and the amount of apologies that this guy is making throughout the book is is for the things that he said in the first one is pretty hilarious so okay, uh, yeah we don't really need that we're just gonna you know let's wait for the next yeah. one um yeah. but but cool so before we move on i just want to share with you guys because we actually have done a really bad job of sharing what spirits we've been drinking recently um sometimes it was because it was nine in the morning and other times because we got caught up in conversation but uh i just i went with the with the oaxaca madre quiche and um the reason i did that because i was actually really confused and nervous about what to pick because i was like oh like what can i get that like that might impress emma like yeah i, I wanted to be like ooh, like drew's drinking that but then i was like i was like but then am i trying too hard and and i i had this internal conflict and it was it was very anxiety filled and so i was like you know what her book was instrumental in cultivating who i am as a mezcal appreciate you know a uh, fan this mezcal was also part of that you know it was like this great kind of like Oh, aha moment. I get it. Um, mm -hmm. I use Karwinski's, which is the scientific name for this agave, as and then more specifically, Madre Quiche as kind of like the baseline for mezcals when I try them. Uh, a lot of people tend to have our Karwinski in their lineup, even if they only have a few expressions. So, you know, whether that be, you know, uh, the Madre Quiche, the Quiche, the uh, like a barrio. Uh, Verde, you know, kind of there's a, there's a few more that you could add to that list. It, it's just always a good barometer for me. It's like, okay, if you make, if you make a Karwinski good, then I'm probably going to like the rest of your stuff, you know, cause I just like that agave. And if you, and if, and if it's not good, I'm not drinking any more of your stuff. <laughs> like, it's like, you took my favorite agave and ruined it. I'm not going to drink any more of your stuff. So, so that's what, that's what's what I'm drinking. It's really, really great for people who are looking uh, you know, to get into mezcal, I think it's a very approachable on the palate, which, you know, sometimes, uh, and what we were talking about offline is like, you know, you need introductions to this stuff, like whether that be through cocktails, which is what your book does such a great job of, of really introducing people to the concepts. Um, but then also like this one, just drinking meat is, is really nice. But I, but now I think it's time for us to give our opinions on facts that we got from a reputable source and the reputable source is on the show right now. 
Okay, so this is the first time ever for the Good Bottle Podcast. We've had writers on before. We've had authors on before. But we've never covered their writing. Um, I don't... With them. With them, yeah. I don't know if I necessarily have a reason for that outside of the fact it's like I feel like maybe they've they've said what they needed to say and they were kind of like, you know, do they really want to keep, you know, retreading this topic? Um, However, again you were the only one who didn't have an ego in our, in our, you know, guest list. I was like, no, I don't want to talk about things I don't know about. Uh, but you just released this article. Um, this was something that you did for eater, which is constantly been a source, a resource for us. And the title of this story, which I think is great is the great Mezcal heist. And throughout this story, you talk about, uh, you know, some of the production of Mezcal, but really and you, you kind of do like the, you know, like the, the Batman origin story that kind of everybody has to touch on. Like when you talk about Mezcal, you're like, ah, oh, it's this and this and this. And you're kind of like, all right, yeah, Martha and they're dead, you know, and you move, and you, you move <laughs> forward. Um, but you're really getting into the CRM, which is the governing body of, you know, or was the of, regu- of Mezcal. Regulating, regulating, the regu- you know, re- regulating it. And then kind of what's happening with mezcal itself and how some of these producers are fighting back. And then you have lots of conversations, you know, with uh, different producers, one of them being, you know, underneath my umbrella, which was Real Monero talking to Graciela um, and then bringing up a lot of different, uh, a lot of different people as well. So like you, you talk with Max Rosenstock, who's from uh, Netta. He's with Netta, right? Yeah. Uh, Max is going to be a future guest on this podcast as soon as I send him an email. Um, but love Max. Great guy. Super fun to talk to you about Mezcal. Uh, and a couple other really, you know, uh, big time personalities within the Mezcal world. And you just go so much deeper into it. I mean, you talk about some of the ways that the CRM has been positive, but then you've also talked about a lot of the ways that it's been negative and what the impressions have been from producers who have been creating Mezcal for multiple generations that are now being told what they do is not Mezcal. And that just doesn't, you know, make sense to a lot of people. So this is a, this is a huge debate in, in the industry right now. And there is a lot of people taking sides and it's gotten I guess, for lack of a better term, just downright nasty between a lot of people. So when you look at this situation and you look at something that's as controversial as this topic is, as a writer, how do you go about that? And then what was really the thing that was drawing you to be like, we need to talk about this more and we need to put this on a forum like Eater? Yeah. um, I mean, first of all, yeah. I mean, talk about a complex story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I knew that going in and I, and Leslie um, Suter from Eater uh, actually approached me about doing the story. Um, she had this big uh, Oaxaca travel package in the works, um, knew they wanted to talk about Mezcal, had been down there herself and thought uh, one of the more interesting things that she noticed was how how there was an increasing number of bottles coming to the U.S. not called Mezcal. And so that was just the crux of the whole thing. Why? Like, that was the one singular question. Why are we seeing more bottles now in America that are called spirits distilled from agave or destinados de agave? Um, And so from there, it was, 
okay, well, let's answer the, that question. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it turned out to be like a 7,000 word uh, exploration <laughs> of, of the thing, uh, which we ended up cutting down to, I think about 3,500 words. I was about to say, I was like, I was like it didn't feel like 7,000. Yeah. Like, was it just, I yeah. mean, I was like, I know you're a good writer, but I was, I was like, was that 7,000? Like, okay. All right. Unless I'm not crazy. Like, okay. All right. Yeah. So you didn't cut it down, but I would yeah. love to see the unedited version of that because it is yeah. really well. Done. And I was telling you offline, like, you just kind of continued to hit, you know, levels of this conversation that a lot of people don't talk about. And the one that mm -hmm. I personally want to highlight is methanol levels. Mm -hmm. um, so methanol levels in agave do exist. And basically what ends up happening is sometimes when methanol gets too high, it can be toxic to humans. So one of the things that they've done is they've regulated that methanol level to 300 parts per million. And you can't go above that or it won't be approved for, for mezcal. Now, because of how things are made in, a, you know, it just methanol is as a byproduct of mezcal production. There has been numerous times where brands have not been able to certify because their PPM levels are just a little bit above that. And it's not a situation where these things are, you know, I, I think that's, there's a little bit of a over-exaggeration that these things are going to kill you if it gets too high. I mean, it can, but not to, not at 300 and not at 400, you know, like it's, it's pretty safe for a while. And it just kind of seems like an arbitrary number. And one that I've personally felt has been a way to continue to disenfranchise producers across Mexico, right? Like if you're forcing these producers who, you know, don't have these super sophisticated production methods to try to hit these arbitrary numbers that nobody really has an answer for. So like for one of my brands, they had to pull out of the country because the FDA was like, was like Oh no, these, these levels are too high. Now that's separate from the CRM, but like this was some feedback that we got. It's like, they're too high. We're like, well, what is the appropriate level? And they couldn't give us an answer. Yeah. There's no real answer to it. So it's like, okay, so we're playing a game and nobody wants to tell us the rules. And yes. then they're, and then they're throwing flags anyway. It's like, you broke the rules. Like what rule is it? We, we can't tell you, you know? And yeah. I just think that if someone, so for you to bring that up, I thought was, I thought was really interesting. And then, you know, you did have a lot of comments from a lot of different people, you know, is it something like, I know Graciela wants to talk about it. She'll talk to anybody about it. She hates the CRM. She, she's been moving, yeah. she's been moving Real Monero away from Mezcal and they continue to do things that we can talk about offline that I think are hilarious, but don't want to necessarily have out in public. Um, but, you know, did you, did you feel any pushback or any unwillingness for people to talk about when you were, when you were doing your research and talking to people? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Um, you know, and I think, and just to like preface, it, I really, I, I talked to as many different kinds of, of people as I could, right? From producers to brand owners, from uh, Mexican-owned brands to Europe, Europeans, um, mm -hmm. American brand owners, um, you know, bartenders, everybody. Um, and I think that's why, I think that's why the story ends up kind of giving you that well-rounded picture. But there were a lot of people who didn't want to talk at all. I mean, I had one brand say, well, are you going to get into the politics? Because if you are, then we're not going to talk. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to put you down on that list. <laughs> right. <laughs> now I know that maybe you only want your marketing messages uh, communicated to the public and not, um, you know, anything substantial about what you're actually doing. Um, and then there were a lot of producers too. So many conversations where, um, actually, I would say almost every conversation, um, one of the absolute top 
um, complaints against the entire system was because of the corruption within uh, the CRM um, and, you know, shady business practices. And I had a lot of off the record conversations um, about those things, um, which, you know, we're in an early, earlier draft of the story, but ultimately um, we didn't run a lot of them because I just couldn't corroborate the stories and um, I was juggling so many other things. And I think, I think in the end, the, the section that we include on that, um, it gets the same point across. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for sure. People did not, people were not comfortable and I can't blame them because, you know, repercussions, right? If you totally, it's, it's talk, especially, talk shit, yeah, especially, gonna, gonna especially in Mexico and especially in a situation where like you can be hurt financially significantly by, yeah. by the people in charge and stuff. And, and so I have, I have this with some of those off the record questions and things like that, I mean, is there, is there ever a point where you get like some of those comments and you're kind of like, you're like, Oh, I really wish I didn't know that, you know, like this has kind mm-hmm. of wrecked my whole view of this, of this particular brand or this industry. Like has that, at, I mean, is that something that you, that you ever encounter, you know, as a journalist? Oh, I mean, definitely within this, category of spirits um i feel like just to speak broadly about it the people i don't want to say talking shit because i it's just hard it's really hard to parse out um how much of what i'm hearing is just rumor is like i heard from so-and-so who heard from so-and-so versus okay, this is more of, um, you know, my, but my actual close first friend, this happened to them kind of thing. Right. Um, so for me, it's as a journalist, you know, I, I am trying to get to the heart of what's going on in a factual way. And so many times I, I do find that is kind of difficult in this, in this sphere. Um, and, and that's also why, you know, I think, especially with this story, we just wanted to stick to, okay, what are the, what are the most clear talking points? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how can we present those to people in a way that's going to be kind of digestible because this whole conversation is so complex. You know, in my experience, uh, in, I guess, relatively short experience in dealing with agave spirits and, um, producers and brand owners and what have you, my, my, my limited experience suggests that this is the most, Agave spirits is the most backbiting genre of booze that I've ever witnessed. I mean, the amount of, like you said, I don't want to necessarily call it shit talking, but the amount of shit talking that we hear of one person saying this about another person and so on and so forth is so prolific that it's, it makes it difficult from a being a third perspective when you're not there and seeing it for yourself to really wade through sort of the bog of rumors My question, I suppose, would be, do you, you know, Drew and I have talked quite a bit about the corruption that exists within uh, the CRM and CRT, for that matter, as well, right? Do do we think that this is specifically a Mexico issue, a CRM issue, or or is it, or does the corruption operate just as bad uh, in other places of the world? Like, let's talk about Cognac for instance, like, right. Mm. I mean, we know, we know that 
corruption gets gets reported differently depending on where it's happening in the world, right? You know, mm-hmm. you talk about like the the Olympic Committee or FIFA, right? We we know that there's corruption there. It's well reported, but it do, it doesn't happen. It doesn't hit the same way as if you're talking about like governmental corruption and whatnot. Do do you yeah. think this is specifically a Mexican problem, or is just or is this simply just their iteration of of this corruption? I mean, I can't. I can't, I cannot imagine that this, I mean, this is definitely not just a Mexico thing. I'm sure it happens all over the world. I don't have um, examples to give you, right? I don't have like firsthand experience with that. Um, And it also, it makes me wonder about, um, about what we hear about in America on that front as well with the power dynamic of, of the way that America has historically looked at Mexico in the first place, right? So like we're presented with a lot of negative stereotypes about um, the people from Mexico. Um, You know, we are, uh, we're fed so many um, cartel movies and cartel TV shows and whatnot. And, you know, I, I, I think our view as Americans looking South is already a little bit kind of informed or colored by those perceptions that we've just kind of like as white people in America have kind of grown up with, like have been conditioned to. Right. So I, I just, I cannot imagine that it, 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 the kind of regulatory corruption would be just limited to Mexico. I, I am sure it must be happening elsewhere in the world as well. Yeah. I mean, I think this is an industry that, you know, especially in the United States, operates in the gray area. You know, if you look at our three-tier system, it's just chock full of corruption and it's just different levels. I mean, it is legitimately a situation where you could, you know, you could flip through your Instagram right now and be like, that's against the law, that's against the law, that's against the law. And it just continues to happen. It -hmm. just does seem that um, Mexico definitely gets the kind of the worst rap when it comes up. But there's, there's definitely a fair amount of shit talk. You know, I do have a lot of close relationships down there and you know, at first it was one of those scenarios where like I had no reason to not believe them when they would say things to me, right? Whether that would be producers, importers, brand ambassadors, whatever the case is. And then as I got more entrenched into the industry and, and had my own contacts and stuff like that, I just was like, I was like, oh, wow, you have to take a lot of this mm-hmm. with a grain of salt. And, you know, and especially going through an article like the one that you wrote, like there are so many different directions that you could have taken, right? Yeah. You know, and then so many different, um, you know, people you really could have thrown underneath the bus. I mean, like, I think there's some stuff that has been corroborated, but then there's a lot of things that haven't. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you try to stay above the fray as, as much as, you can, as I'm trying more these days, but there's definitely those brands that you're kind of like, nah, F those guys. Like sure. we're not, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not messing with those. So now, you know, to really kind of bring it back to the article, um, you know, you're talking about people switching from having Mezcal on their label to Destilado de Agave or like, as you said, distillates from Agave. When you hear, when, when you're talking to these people, you know, like Graciel from, from Real Monero or just like seeing the impact um, in terms of your conversations with importers and, and brand owners, like, do they see it as a detriment that they can no longer that they're no longer using mezcal, or is it is it been, I guess maybe taking the chains off and letting them just kind of put out, 
put out mm-hmm. the things that they want to put out? What was the sense that you got from people? It, it really differed based on who I was talking to. Um, you know, I mean, someone like Graciela, um, who, you know, her family has been making mezcal since the 1800s. You know, I, I think clearly that was not an easy decision for her um, to walk away from using the name because the name means something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, other producers, um, you know, they didn't, maybe it just wasn't as important. And, and, and I think in some respects, because even then in some, in different parts of the country, not everyone calls it mezcal to begin with, right? Right. Um, so right. that in itself, I think, kind of influences the conversation um, a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it was a it was a little bit of a mixed bag. And and it's funny because this during the whole time I was reporting this, I started the work back in late August. And um, it's funny, Chris, that you opened the podcast with a Shakespeare line, because the line that kept going through my head over and over and over again was, OK, well, does mezcal still taste as sweet by any other name? Right. Um, what's in the name? What why does it matter what we call things? Um, what would happen? Like, how would I feel if someone came to me and said, well, uh, uh, this is a terrible example because I don't make spirits, but, um, you know, this thing that you've always known, uh, by, you know, like I drink tea every morning, right? My mom's English. Uh, you can't call that Earl Grey anymore. You have to call it something else. Like, would I care? Would I not care? Um, and I think that exploration of, uh, for so many people, the name does matter because this is a product that is tied to their family histories. Um, and, and maybe it wouldn't matter to me because kind of touching on what we were talking about earlier in sense of place, you know, I, and a lot of people that I know, um, don't have family businesses that they're carrying on. Right. I don't have that through line back five, six generations. Um, I don't know, I don't think anyone, I don't know anyone who does. Um, so when I look at, at that, and and clearly this is, you know, like me again, through this lens, looking at this issue, um, it is, I think the name would mean a great deal to me if it was something that I was producing for that, if my whole family had done that, and I had that strong connection to where I was from and what my ancestors did for so long. Well, I think about it yeah. from a consumer standpoint as well, right? Which is mm-hmm. like if we're a we're in California, and I'm sure the same's in New York and the East Coast, right? The middle of the country knows almost nothing about Muscal outside of you know a couple epicenters. It's not only can you yeah, get Chicago's so much, a huge market, sure, yeah, Chicago's but, like but, the market. It's it's yeah. the market, right? But out outside of like uh, that maybe a little bit of Kansas city, St. Louis, right? Like outside of those, like even your access is so tiny compared to what it is in those places. Right. And so from a consumer standpoint, who is just learning about Muscal, right? Like the, the amount of effort that I have to put into my family is outrageous. The amount of free booze that (laughs) I've shipped them just in hopes that they get on board. It it's stupid. All that aside, right. When you lose the name, there are, you know, there are certain assumed regulations that go along with that as well. How do we, how do we qualify? How do we, uh, how do we qualitate production without a DO? 
right? If everything mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, is just a lot of agave, where where then does ancestral fit? Where then does industrial fit? Right? Yeah. Anybody can call it anything. And then how many how many South Africans are going to jump on this mm -hmm. load of agave? Right? Uh, are sure. they going to start Different being countries. allowed to call it mescal, or or are they going to develop their own? Um, where where then is sort of the the in, industry's responsibility for curating that that um, that experience for the consumer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that. I mean, you touch on such a good point, and I think it, you know, looking at the whole issue from a bird's eye, and I've talked to a couple of other people who have this same perspective, this is kind of where the DO as a set of rules and regulations kind of started off from a flawed place to begin with, because it, what would have happened if, if they had looked at the category of wine instead and use that as a model, right? Everyone knows what wine is. It's made all over the world. And then you have the smaller denominations or appellations of origin underneath that umbrella. So you have Mezcal de Oaxaca, you have tequila, you have Raicia and Baconora. And those are all, you know, the subsets of agave spirits. Then you don't have problems with other countries distilling, right? You could make mm -hmm. agave spirits here in America, which I know some people do. Um, and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. It wouldn't be controversial. You know, Drew, Drew and I um, have a, have a sense. Drew and I have a friend uh, who is actively working on regulating California agave, and he mm -hmm. and I have sit on sort of opposite sides of this gray area. Neither of us are are fully fledged on one side of the fence or the other, but um, you know, it, it it brings up this conversation. That's sort of what I think about. You know, like if California starts making agave agave spirits, which happens. Agave is yeah. freaking prolific around here. I've got, I've got on my tiny little piece of property here. I think I have like 12 plants, right? Sure. It, it grows like wildfire around here. Is that a thing? I don't think that's a thing. Anyway, it grows a lot. <laughs> it grow much. It do good. It is. It is. <laughs> you know, well, so, think... you know, it, it, if you're getting that, like how then do, do we as, as an industry start regulating on our side, if we can't count on regulators to be regulated right. on their own, right? Well, I think it's it's important to point out that you know the CRM was not a government entity; like it was a private group, and I think that's also where things got a little wonky. Right? Is that they started to put out this thing? I was like, this is what mezcal is, and you know, and they actually got checked. What was it about a year ago when they got a pretty major fine for, mm -hmm. you know, trying to be trying to narrow down too much of what Mezcal was? You know, I think bringing up the the industry responsibility, you know, my my mindset and we did talk about this a little bit offline earlier is just, you know, there's it's a really kind of a slippery slope for a lot of us now. A lot of people who care about this industry because, you know, you don't want to overstep your bounds. You don't want to, you know say something that because I, I look at mezcal now for myself as i'm a visitor in this world and mm -hmm. i'm happy to be i'm happy to be invited um now with that being said i don't necessarily think it's my fight to take to take on 
right? Like I, there's people I believe in. I believe in Graciela. If Graciela wants to remove Mezcal from her label, perfectly fine by me. I'm still going to go out there every single day because the reality is like when you get up into, and, and a lot of the, a lot of the, the items and brands that you had mentioned in your article, Emma, like these are not your beginner Mezcals. And right. that's, and, and it's that way for a couple different reasons. One of them is price. These are on the higher end of the spectrum, right? And not everybody comes into a brand new spirit or alcohol buying the most expensive things. I mean, it does happen, but not, not always. And so, sure, but I you, you and I have talked about that as being sort of part of the problem too, right? A lot of people who come into Mezcal drinking swill out of, out of the well, right? And, and that's their introduction and they never want to touch it again. Well, I mean, I think you're going to lose those people. I mean, I, I mean, I always use, I always compare it to like, if you, you know, if your only introduction to whiskey was in a one and a half liter plastic bottle, like that might not be the best representation of the entire category. Right. And, and, oh, I, ver- and I think versus, versus agave, which is when it shows up in a, in a one and a half liter plastic bottle without a label on it i'm more than excited yeah. well that's yeah that's definitely not, it's definitely yeah, yeah. and know, also like much, may or may not be like 20 percent or 50 percent uh yeah you know canada, like the, <laughs> yeah i but i think i think the the responsibility lies in just the same thing that that this industry has been doing it's just it's like okay if the producers are saying that they want to do these things a certain way. It's like, all right, let's, let's support them. You want to call this? Cause to me, it doesn't matter what it's called, you know, Destilado de Agave, Mezcal, Bacanora, Luchaguilla, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, so much of, so much of this, I mean, Chris, Chocolo is a great example. Yeah. That's why, you know? that's why I was drinking it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like you could call that, you could technically call it Ricea, but they don't call it Ricea. They call it Chocolo because why? That's the name of their town. That's what they've always called it. And, you know, and even even within these, um, like I remember like the, the first and the first of many confusing things when it comes to, you know, to agave production was like, you know, awesome. Oaxaca calls this Karwinski a Madre Quiche. Down the street, Real mm-hmm. Monero calls it a Barril. Like, they're 30 minutes apart, you know, and it's like, and they're calling these things completely different. It's just kind of like, all right, we're just guests here. You need to be flexible and you need to kind of be like, all right, this is, this is what we're calling it here. This is what we're calling it there. I mean, I think the true mark of any, you know, agave expert is the first thing out of their mouth should be like, oh, I don't know anything. I'm just still trying to learn, you know, like that should really be your calling card. uh, If you're going to, if you're going to have expert anywhere near your name when it comes to Mezcal. Um, so, I mean, you know, articles like this, I think are really important because it did take a ton of information and it made it digestible and it showed how this is affecting different people. And I just, I, what I'm hoping is, is that as we become more open to stuff where, you know, this, this sense of place and the transparency, I think that's what, I think that's what mostly our generation is looking for is transparency. You look at a Real Monero bottle and it might not say Mezcal on it, but it has everything else. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to know about production, it is on there, right? And I think that's the that's where the industry is moving. Um, you know, I, I obviously still think that things need to be tested to make sure they're not going to kill people because that was always kind of like the thing, like any person I know who is a 
unofficial or official ambassador for the CRM was like, anytime something would happen in terms of poisoning with alcohol, oh my gosh. I mean, they were screaming it from the rooftops. Like, see, this is why we're here. This is why we're doing this thing. It's just kind of like, wow, that's a very specific situation that you had to go and pull out, you know, to justify the means. Like, you know, I was like, I'm, I've always been anti CRM. I'm really anti regulation, which is why me and Chris fall on different, you know, sides of the California agave debate. Because my thought process is, is like, you guys don't even make good agave yet. Maybe we shouldn't regulate it till you figure it out. Mm. You know, you start making good juice. Let's start making some rules for it until you figure out how to make it good. I'm not interested in rules. I um, have you tasted the stuff from Yolo yet? I just tasted it like uh, two weeks ago. It's beautiful. Well, I mean, then they're. I mean, they have been trending the right way, mm-hmm. but some of the earlier stuff. Well, not. I great. mean, that's fair. I mean, we just we just talked to Kyle a couple episodes ago, and we were just talking about about their spirit not being great in the beginning and now being legendary now in a few right, short but years. That was also, but that's also an example of like, you know, Kohana didn't come out, make a distillate that they weren't necessarily stoked on and be like, by the way, this is how you make Hawaiian agriculture. That was not like the next step. It was like, we made it. Now we dictate the rules. And, in, and you're seeing that with, you know, American single malt whiskey right now is that there are people trying to put rules on it. But I do, you know, and, and after talking, Chris, with your buddy the other day about it from Wesson, it's like they're, they are trying to preserve some level of quality, but you don't want to be restricting to people and to bring it all, you know, and to bring it back to Emma, what you said about, we should have, we should treat Mezcal the same way that we treat wine with all the subcategories and just kind of being like, you know, no one's saying different DOs from Italy aren't as important because it's just not as well known. Like that's ridiculous. In yeah. and like and to a certain degree, that kind of happens with this stuff now, where it's like, oh, it's a Desolado de Agave. Like it's inferior. It's not safe. Like that is ridiculous. You know, and yeah. I think that's where the conversation needs to change. And it, it's on the on the responsibility on the industry to be like, no, no, no. When somebody says that, you got you have to you have to push back on it. Yeah, I think it's on. It's kind of on everybody, right? Because uh, uh, what we're talking about is not synonymous with quality, and I think a lot of people hundred um, percent believe yes. that, right? Like right. you believe, like you believe that DOs are put into place, like champagne. You believe that DO is put into place because champagne is going to be better quality than prosecco, right? Or like right. there's this perception that's been created around that, and. It's simply not true. There's going to be incredible Desilados de Agave. There's going to be incredible certified mezcal. And so I think I agree with you, Joe. I think a lot of it comes down to transparency, um, learning which producers are doing things in a way that's honoring their tradition while also making something really delicious. And mm-hmm. like sorting out who you want to support in, in that way, right? And not just kind of blindly trusting the system, which was put into place you know, sometimes they use the word quality. You know, they want to reassure you that, that it's that it's of, of this good quality and it's just not, that's not really what it actually does. Yeah, yeah you I know, think there's, you know, there's, from, just, there's bigger a... issues. There's just bigger issues, right? So it's yeah. like, you can argue about what you can call mezcal, but I'm, I'm more concerned about these like ghost mezcaleros that just keep popping up in towns that, have 300 people in them it's like how can so many mescaleros exist in one place like this is completely ridiculous or you know 
Yeah, then most <laughs> of the time they don't. Like that's like, yeah, I have a couple I can start reeling off with like not a real person, not a real person, yeah. not a real person. And you know, when you have those and and I think there's, you know, some of that is brought on by you know, exclusive contracts and people just trying to, you know, make more money, which I'm mm-hmm. I'm very pro. I want I think the the conversation really needs to change in terms of that to like looking at mescaleros as entrepreneurs and we need to let these families grow and produce for whoever they want and stop, you know, for some, you know, importers, like stop sandbagging these guys, Mm -hmm. just let them sell to whoever they want to sell to, let them use their names and make some money and continue to build, hopefully generational wealth for their family. You know, like when you see the families that have been really successful and what they've been able to do, not only for their family, but for their communities, like that's what we need to do. Like, let's keep the money in Oaxaca, um, you know, in Chihuahua, in, um, you know, Michoacan, like that's where, that's where it needs to stay. Like, again, there's, I think there's just bigger issues than if we're calling something, you know, Mezcal, it's like, you know, different, like the, the wood issue, I think is like, nobody's talking about that. Like it's going to get way worse. We need to, we need to completely reevaluate how we look at, how we look at, you know, heating these, uh, these stills and, and, and whatnot. And then also, uh, you know, just people with these practices where they're underpaying producers or they're taking water from neighboring villages and using it, you know, from it's just there's just it just to me is just kind of like, like, man, there are so many issues. This just isn't it. This isn't the one right now. So, well, I those are also profoundly um, insightful issues, right? Like you have to be in the know to know those issues. And so I'm just, I'm going to sit here and uh, while I completely agree with everything, both of you are saying as the person who owns a shop, I'm still going to sit here and think about it from a consumer perspective. Right. And, and think about things about how do we, how do we have that conversation? Um, how do I sell these things when those designations disappear? And a lot, and I'm in a very particularly good spot with that. As in I'm insanely educated my staff and business partner are all extremely educated, right? I think Drew touched on a really good spot uh, and like great point here when that answered my question. I don't think he was even trying to answer my question because mostly he just ignores my questions Um, (laughs) uh, in that as being a visitor and putting our trust in, in the producers and really just saying like, you know, this is on them. Then if they, if they want to remove this designation uh, from their label, it's on them then to explain what the quality and the production is, right? You don't get to sit back as we hear so often and say, well, that's proprietary information. We can't, we can't tell you that. Right. Which you hear over and over again, from massive brands like, well, I'm not, I'm not at liberty to tell you this part because you will somehow open up a still in your garage. If you're lucky (laughs) enough to even have a garage and make this, you know, million secrets, you're going to steal my (laughs) secrets of my, you know, million case brand. Yeah. That always always makes me tiny piece of information. Yeah. That always makes me think of like, uh, um, like the cookbook example. It's like, just because I go out and buy Gordon Ramsay's cookbook doesn't mean I can cook like Gordon Ramsay. It's like, get the yes. hell out of here. doesn't make sense. Okay. So I'm going to wrap up this conversation. And um, so I'm going to just 
just a let's get a little pie in the sky, I guess. Let's 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 shoot for the stars here. In a perfect world, Emma, what do you see for the future of Mezcal in your perfect world? I, I think you gotta you gotta will that one down a little bit in terms of what, yeah. Drew. <laughs> Just I mean it's like, you know, it pick regulations fine, pick, in terms of like production levels. Let's go regulations. What's what's well, what's the perf- what's the perfect world for you? What do you think makes sense for everybody? Oh, I mean, well, I was already thinking about the first question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I you know I think regulations. It's it's so hard for me to say right now, just because everything is such a clusterfuck. Um, mm-hmm. And and kind of uh, dialing it back to a place that would make sense, you know. I mean, sure, pie in the sky. Go back and let's 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 go to this wine scenario where mm. everything is in agave spirit, and then the, your different regions have your different um, dios and appellations based on the local culture and customs there. Um, I don't see that ever happening, personally. Um, I just don't, I just don't see how it'd be possible. I I think in a perfect world, um, you're just going to see, you're going to see enough transparency, um, from brands that there's a a much more educated consumer base. So the consumer base votes with their dollars, right? Supports the, becomes more educated, supports the brands that are doing things in a way that's respectable, not mass produced. Um, again, it's something I don't actually know that could ever happen, but that w- I think would be really wonderful to see. Yeah. Chris, what about you? What's a, what's a pie in the sky wish that you have for Mezcal moving forward? That I, I'm with Emma on this. This is a really difficult question because uh, I You're just keep co- I keep coming back to your and my conversation about so many things, which is regulation versus non-regulation, you know, and I, I sit on the fence of some regulation is necessary and you sit on the fence of everything is a slippery slope. I, my issue with the slippery slope sort of argument is that, yeah, everything's a slippery slope, right? And we, so oftentimes we, we discount the position that we're in as being a part of that slippery slope. Like if we, and we assume something else is the penultimate, you know, final destination. If we, if we make one stroke, you know, if we say this is, if we, if we regulate this thing, then where, where do regulation stops? All of a sudden we end up in communism. Like clearly the rest of the world ends up in, somewhere in the middle and i i think a we need regulation because we need to make sure people don't die and we're living in a world where that seems lightweight ridiculous but the reality of that situation is less than 100 years old right and and has a lot of historical evidence on the other side of that to suggest that people were profiting off of other people's death i mean shit we can look here to the opioid crisis, right? Like there needs to be some regulation in terms of who makes money off of what. So that way the consumer doesn't just die based on someone's good word. That being said, we also know that regulations and specifically regulatory committees can be bribed and you can change those regulations on a whim just based on having enough money. So 
I'm lost somewhere in the middle here. I like, I don't, I don't know what the answer is for me. It's let's make sure people don't die. Let's put enough information on a bottle. So that way people can trust where that information is coming from. Maybe we can regulate what goes on a bottle and it can be fact checked somehow, some way like a, like a good piece of journalism and, and then let us go about our day, right? Like at the end of the day, having titles on bottles means something because they're culturally relevant. Let's not regulate the culturally relevant shit out of existence, but let's let people live their lives and have their sense of place um, and not make them pay for that shit as if like they haven't lived there for several hundred years. Right. Yeah. I think that's kind of where, where I'm, where I'm landing. It's like, trust the producers, trust where this is, you know, trust the source. You know, I think in the, in my experience, when it comes to Mexican spirits and, you know, the level of corruption I've seen in different ways, in different methods, going to the people who actually make it and seeing how they really feel about it and how they like it, that's who I'm going to go with. Like, it's like, okay, this is how you want to do it. That's how we're, that's, that's how I want to do it because you're the one that's in the trenches every single day having to make this stuff. You're the one that has that cultural tie and you know i guess baggage you know that sounds negative but i'm not meaning it to sound negative but it's like you're you there's more at stake for for them to lose you know than me like, i'm gonna drink it regardless right so i think trusted producers well, yeah, we're, we're heathens we'll drink anything so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> uh well good that was a spirited conversation on you know with the actual source that was great I mean, we, we might have to i might have to start beating up the writers a little bit more like we're talking about your stuff <laughs> like let's do it you know who's dope them over there okay so now we're gonna move on to my favorite segment and this is where we tell you who you should be checking out this is our dope follows it could be instagram account facebook group podcast books like a book called mezcal written by today's guest or her the new book let's see the uh the way of the cocktail newer newish i guess 2021 it's been a long year um check 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 that stuff out what's so, what's way the cocktail about loosely it's uh so julia mamose is um the owner of the bar kumiko in chicago and she um was born and raised in japan and um her cocktail bar is just an incredible i mean one of the best cocktail bars I've ever been to. And I'm not just saying that because she hired me to help her write her book. Um, <laughs> it, so it, it's essentially, um, it's about Japanese cocktail culture and uh, the history of that, uh, the tools, the techniques, uh, the spirits, and then a nice, long, dedicated section to Julia's recipes uh, for cocktails, which um, some are inspired by historic recipes. Others are... Um, just one she's developed for her bar and it's organized by micro season. So it's um, a really beautiful way to drink your way through the year. Um, really, really just beautiful book. Julia is a good storyteller and the Clarkson Potter team did a stellar job with the design. Um, uh, the photography is beautiful. The illustrations are gorgeous um it, it's a beautiful coffee table book but uh if you read it you'll learn so so much uh, at least i did 
I can't because wait. Our, I, I, I haven't had my hands. Don't follow. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten my hands on it yet. I'm very, I would like to. I, I need, you and I, afterwards, we're going to figure out how to get that into my store so the way other people get their hands on it. Uh, we have a series of, we have like a small library that people, uh, you know, it's not like an extensive cocktail library that people can come buy books, but we always have books that are like worthwhile. Uh, and that this is definitely one of them. Um, I, you know, we need, we need people to be excited about cocktail books again and not just people on Facebook. Is there a, uh, and I, and one of the other things that you had, you just finished co-authoring the bartender's manifesto. Do you have a date on when that is going to be yeah. out or is it, is it so drop that? Yeah. So that's going to be, um, June 13th. Um, and I wrote that with Toby Maloney of the Violet Hour, which was, um, one of Chicago's first serious cocktail bars when it opened in 2007. Um, Toby's beautiful bar, the beautiful bar. Sasha, yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, Toby's from the Sasha Petrosky school. Um, he worked uh, with Sasha, worked with Audrey Saunders at Pegu Club, um, worked with Julie Reiner at Flatiron. So he's one of the, you know, originals from the cocktail scene. Um, and that book is uh, also really proud of having worked on that one. It's not a coffee table book. It's not just um, a book of recipes from the Violet Hour. It's essentially Toby's experience and philosophies um, rolled into this kind of set of lessons on how to really embody being a bartender and the process of that, um, but also how to create cocktails, um, essentially with whatever you have on hand. So um, it, it's a really, really fun book. Like uh, Julia's book, I like to say, is very, it's, they have a Michelin star. So like, it's very elegant. It's very beautiful. It's very lyrical. Um, and the bartender's manifesto was very punk rock. It's very Charles H. Baker. Um, his humor and his character come through really strongly. Uh, so it's very entertaining. In addition to having delicious recipes in it that are all super easy to make, I can tell you because I had to make all of them <laughs> uh, over the pandemic, which was a blast. Um, and I still make a lot of them to this day. So it's, it's super accessible and really fun. I like it. I also think like there's no way you're not fun if your name is Toby Maloney. Like that's yeah. just kind of like, you know, you just go like, like, hey, yeah, I'm here for a good time. Yeah. Um, all right. So so definitely uh, I know I'm going to pick up uh, um, both of those, uh, add it to my add it to the Jansen section in my library. So mm-hmm. um, but Emma, who's your dope follow? Who should who should our listeners be checking out? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, because we're talking so much about mezcal, um, I wanted to point people towards uh, Mezcalistas, um, which is um, started off as kind of a blog a long time ago. Um, Susan Koss is one of the co-founders, and she's kind of the one who's running the show today. And um, it's just, it's an invaluable resource, I think, for anyone who wants to learn more about agave spirits. They do a lot of 101, but they also do a lot of really timely news stuff. Um, I, I'm always on it. Uh, I learned so much from them, and they're um, definitely a huge resource for me because Susan and uh, her writers, they, they always have their ears to the ground. Um, they're in Mexico all the time, which, you know, I hope to be in Mexico more um, if I can get the finances together for that. Um, so 
yeah, they take a real like uh, journalistic approach to covering the entire industry. And I think um, it's definitely worth a follow. Yeah, I agree. I love Susan. We've had a lot of off the record conversations, which is like my favorite thing to have with her because we actually, yeah, we view the, we view the industry in very similar ways. And so I always get excited when something controversial happens and you either send each other a text. It's like, Oh, here we go. Like here, you know, here it goes again. And, and I love the fact that they've expanded, you know, like it was really her and Max, you know, initially doing Mm -hmm. pretty much everything. And, um, you know, the, the writers that they've, they've added, we're actually going to have one on in a couple of weeks. Um, it's really cool. Cause like they're, they're just offering different experiences and the levels of access that some of them have is, is really great. Yeah. I, that's, that's such a great follow. And I know I had Susan on my happy hour show, but I don't think that we've actually brought her into this show. So we're going to have to, I'm going to have to get her on here. Cause she's great. That, that's a great yeah. don't follow. Good call. Uh, Chris, who's your don't follow? Uh, mine's a lot, uh, a little bit more lighthearted because I was expecting you to go off the the rails a little bit, so I wanted to bring our listeners back <laughs> into into a little bit of the fun realm. Uh, mine is um, uh, on Instagram and probably a few other places, but it's uh, at Milo the Cat. It's um, uh, Milo the Cat is a great fun. Uh, uh, sort of like a, like almost like a parody site, but it's not a parody site. Uh, the producers, they take old school cartoons, uh, and they put nineties hip hop over it and it makes it look like, uh, all the nineties cartoons are just rapping to this nineties hip hop. I think it's almost primarily the nineties hip hop. There might be a few other things in there as well, but, uh, it's, it's just, it's a lot of fun. And like, you go everything from like Fred Flintstone all the way through like, it's a lot of like Hanna-Barbera stuff. It, it's great. So there's no actual cats involved is what you're telling me. Unless they're there's cartoons. No That's oh, see, man. you got me all excited. And I know Emma's a cat person too. So here we are as yeah. cat people being like, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's this do awesome this cat. Like I was really excited. And then you're like nineties <laughs> rap twist. cartoons. Gross. Um, little twist. Uh, okay. Okay. That's good. Well, I'm here to save the day because not only did you think I'd go off the rails? I also thought there was a chance I would go <laughs> off the rails. And so with that being said, my don't follow this week is very lighthearted and it is going to be Al underscore kitty. So O W L underscore kitty, which I think everyone knows how to spell that, right? What this guy does, this content creator is he puts his cat into movies and changes the whole storyline so the my first experience with this was he inserted his cat into the titanic movie yeah i just saw saw that that one i saw that one the other day yeah so so it's so the titanic one is amazing but then when you start really going down the rabbit hole of this guy's account it's like oh my gosh it continues to get better and better and then with each time that he does one of these videos he immediately or not immediately, but then soon after releases how he did it. And it's really funny to watch him parade around in front of a green screen with his cat. And it's just, it's just amazing. Like I've gone back to it multiple times over this past week, just laughing hysterically at, you know, because if anybody who has a cat, like trying to get your cat to do anything 
is just like, it's not on your terms, right? So it's Al, Al underscore Kitty. Check it out. It's so funny. Um, I didn't go off the rails as much as I thought I would. I uh, My daily stoic reading kind of put me in check today. So it kind of brought me back down to earth. And uh, it was, I think we all benefited from it. But go check out the Al underscore Kitty because, I mean, it is it is so funny. But overall, very dope follows. I like all these follows. Good job, everybody. The music for the Good Bottle Podcast is orchestrated by Leon and Chase Moore and produced pretty damn well by us two guys. And before we go kill these bottles, actually the second of my bottles, I already killed the first one before we even started, uh, that we've been drinking. We ask that if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at The Good Bottle Podcast or on our personal accounts. Mine is D Garrison 6 Chris is Kristen Flair. Emma, where can they find you on the social medias? Yep, it's just my name, Emma Jansen, uh, J-A-N-Z as in zebra, E-N. Um, and that's on Twitter and Instagram. Nice. Where can they buy your books? Um, almost any independent bookseller is good. Um, also available on Amazon. Nice. Uh, you, you gotta, you gotta do like the the PC answer first, right? Like support your local yeah. one, but like just buy my book. I don't care. Uh, yeah. Also, it's <laughs> Uh, you can also support the podcast by visiting our Etsy shop. Just look up the Good Bottle Podcast. Of course, we got the infamous fanny pack on that. Be sure to check it out. Find the secret message. You could also check out anchor.fm slash Good Bottle Podcast and contribute that way. That way we can buy multiple copies of Emma's new book that's coming out. And if you would uh, like to cover a story or if you're working on a brand that wants to be featured, please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com because Drew actually checks it now it's I'm only getting it, very it's, it's very consistent it's a few seasons but you're there it's just i'm a few there years. i'm like it's like a two routine to three now. day response time no okay almost. uh and as a as a reminder you can purchase some of these bottles that we drank on this episode at the good bottle shop and until next time hey cheers 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 no, that was